Hello and welcome to We've Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about a classic, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. That's right. Swashbuckling, Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Claude Rains. Directed by Michael Curtiz. And starring uh, Basil Rathbone as well. Yes. It's, got, it's an all-star, well... Michael Curtiz and William Kiley, the directors, jointly credited... I- are they jointly credited? Yeah, it said, I, no- I noted right at the start. I, t- okay. I pointed out to you, didn't I? It said it's directed by Curtis and Kylie. Oh, because I, I know that uh, Kylie was fired from it. Well, um, maybe that's but why. I didn't know that he, they were both credited. It certainly is at the start of the film. Right. Okay. I, I noticed it. Because we were talking just the other day about DGA credits. Right, and right, you're right. only allowed one. Because um, we were talking about um, Bohemian Rhapsody and how the director changed on that. So. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, I know. But, you know. Any thoughts on the dual directors? Um, you can really tell in many scenes that it's directed by Michael Curtiz. All of the ones that have gradations of light, you know, the use of the shadows. In fact, I was watching a film on Technicolor and the development of Technicolor, and they said that one of the first things to go out the window when Technicolor came in was shadows. Mm. So, you know, the cin- cinematography had become very sophisticated uh, in black and white by that point. But actually, three-strip Technicolor, one of the tendencies was just to light up everything so that you would get the brightest color possible. Well, you had to because you, you, need, you need to just split the light coming into the camera into three separate... You need to split it into red, green, and blue. Yes. And so you needed much more light just to actually make it work. So one of the first things that was sacrificed with that was actually, you know, things yeah. like shadows and the gradations and so, you know, and so on. There is a flat look to everything. It's, it's a lot, I mean, one of the things is that it's early days of Three Strip Technicolor when they're making this. And I think you, you and I were both pointing out just like there's colour everywhere yes. because there's like an excitement about it really and I mean, at one point we noticed there was um there was a pepper in a fruit bowl yes and the only the only reason could possibly be that it adds color exactly you know but i love that yeah you know it's glorious and i find the technicolor cheery and joyous yeah yeah it is yeah it's but i'm keen i'm keen to know what you think really well i thought i thought the same about that i mean it's it um and uh, particularly sort of for the first half of the film where it's it's just enormously sort of exciting, and you're just watching the, the um, watching Errol Flynn going around. We were talking about him being like a lad. Yes. It's like him and the lads. Yes. Um, uh, he's he kind of. I mean, one thing that I I think is perhaps a little lacking about the early section of the film is that the revolution that he's kind of building up to is it's a bit weak. It's kind of um, actually what he's really doing. The, the, he seems to be just kind of messing around, really. Like when he when he when they meet Friar Tuck, he kind mm. of just plays a prank on him, and all the other all the other merry men are hiding behind the bushes, and they all laugh. And it's kind of charming and funny, but he's basically being like a lout. <laughs> um, and it's not until later in the film that the revolution actually becomes a revolution. Yeah. Um, well, yes, yes and no. I mean, what I like about the thing with Little John and the priest is that Robin Hood ends up being the butt of his own joke and accepts it heartily, yeah? So, you know, he gets beaten by little John and laughs about it instead of being angry and, yeah? Yeah, and, and the friar bests him in a sword fight in the river or holds his own at least. Holds his own, yeah. 
and and then he's all welcoming and forgiving and you know so there's a kind of a good naturedness to the whole thing mm. that is very infectious you know it's kind of it's like it's really cheery you know yeah and he's kind of he's witty he's charming and, he, and he's he's that kind of character who uh, sees the funny side in everything yes sort of thing um, a little bit like Archer in, in the TV yes. show Archer <laughs> you know like he always like the thing about Archer that I love is that no matter what kind of dangerous situation he's in he's like hanging off the side of a building and he's got helicopters aiming bombs at him and he's just laughing and finding it really funny. That's kind of that's kind of Errol Flynn in this. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of enthralled at the moment with Errol Flynn. Actually, I've been going kind of well as systematically as I could through all of the films that he did with Michael Curtiz, and it's interesting because you know paradoxically he's someone who I feel ever since I've been interested in cinema, I've known and I've known about you know, and of course I've seen some of his films, but you know, everybody talks about how handsome he was and so on. And I never quite got it, yeah, until I saw him in motion, mm. you know? I mean, obviously, he's a good-looking man. Yeah. But I didn't think he was like, whoa, you know, like, so much to write home about. No, no, it, but it's his charm. And his, yeah. And his, his uh, gesture and his expressions, that sort of thing. He, he exudes... Um, happiness, I don't know how to describe it, you know, it's, he exudes joy. Joie de vivre. Yes, he does, yeah. you know, and, you know, he clearly, like, loves people, and he loves people in, in all their kind of, you know, weaknesses, and, yeah, so he's surrounded by people who are either not very bright or very greedy or, you know, and, and he kind of accepts it all about them, you know, he's like a kind of a cheery, accepting presence in all of it, who, yeah. you know, who moves beautifully. You know, so um, I kind of, yeah, I just, and he was, it's very interesting because he was the great action figure of his day, mm. right? So, um, and it's interesting to think about those things. So the film is a, a remake of, you know, the Douglas Fairbanks silent film, which I've never seen, mm. you know, though I have read on, on Fairbanks. Uh, and, you know, kind of Fairbanks was also the action figure of his day. You know, and he's kind of seen to be representative of that kind of, you know, American optimism. And he's always in motion and he moves really gracefully. And, you know, so um, and it's interesting to compare, you know, well, we've just seen Errol Flynn, but, you know, to action figures of other eras. So to like, say, you know, Burt Reynolds in the 70s or Schwarzenegger in the 80s, mm. you know, or maybe Matt Damon now, you know, they're very, very different you know, yeah. kind of people who do action movies. You know, and they, 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 um, maybe it's just me projecting, but you think they represent their era in some way. You know, they kind of, they say something about, you know, what an ideal, you know, figure of masculine, masculinity and, you know, daring do is for each period. It tells a lot, you know, so you have yeah. the cyborg figure of, you know, of, of Schwarzenegger, quite dark and machine-like and so on. As opposed to like you know, kind of Errol Flynn, who's you know just graceful, light and, and airy, and yeah, and kind of charming and cheeky, life. and yeah, so, and witty, and witty, you know, yeah. That wonderful bit, there's a great line where he, he, he uh, Olivia Havilland, Maid Marian, at one point says, "Yeah, you speak treason," and he goes, and he sort of flashes a grin, and he goes fluently. <laughs> Brilliant! <laughs> I really love that. <laughs> And that's what that scene's full of. Yes. And then, of course, it descends into a sword fight because it does. Yeah. And what I loved about the action, and, and 
I think this is this is definitely uh, this is definitely watching it with a kind of ironic sort of distance because because it's eighty years later. Yes, um, is going. I what I like about the action is that I reckon I could do everything that they did in this just as well. Like it, it, there's a there's a, a there's an aesthetic to it. The way it looks now is like a load of amateurs having a go at having a sword fight. Which I know is not what it was. Yeah. I know it was like this was premiere action of the day. It was. But, but it was to, a huge hit. But to modernise, it doesn't look like that anymore. Well, uh, you know, this is something that I've remarked upon in the past, and that fascinates me, you know. So, like, when James Cagney or, um, or Errol Flynn, actually, James Cagney more than Errol Flynn, like, you know, our ideas of what spectacular ac- action are change over time. Mm. So, you know, James Cagney throws somebody a punch and that's it, the fight's over, right? Like, you yeah. know, uh, or it lasts two or three punches, right? But, you know, kind of, I suppose the idea was then the two or three punches were enough to put any man down if they yeah, landed yeah. right, right? You know, so, so, and to us now, it just seems like... It, it, as sensibilities change, it starts to look very silly. Yeah. And you just have to keep in mind that that's not the way it looked. I mean, another thing I was thinking was... Um, how would this film have gone across to... How would it have come across to English audiences of the time? Yes. Because today we look at it... Today, if, we, if, we, if you get um, an American version of an English story, um, generally, English audiences will find things to laugh at in it because there'll be inaccuracies, there'll be silly things that, you know, kind of cultural misunderstandings, that sort of thing. But you pointed out that, like, this, was, this is an anti-monarchist sort of tale. To a degree. It's a very democratic story. Right. It's a very depression American story, in fact. And this was an era where, you know, you couldn't you couldn't take the piss out of the Queen, you couldn't take the piss out of politicians even in England. Yes. Um, you know, people are a lot more deferential. Yeah, I'd be curious then. to know because actually that kind of reception would be easy to investigate, right? Mm. You just you know, you look at the reviews of the Times and the Daily Mail or whatever and you yeah, know, yeah. figure out how it was received or, you know, Graham Greene or Dillis Powell or you know, so that kind of would not be difficult to find out. Um, I'm assuming it was a big hit. I ha- certainly haven't heard anything uh, contrary. But I think it is a very American story or a very American take on the story in the sense that it is about kind of collectively coming together uh, to fight oppression. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, so in that sense, it's a very Warner Brothers film, you know. Um, and also, it's very conciliatory, right? It's kind of it brings together Anglo, you know, uh, Anglo Saxons and Normans, and we're all Englishmen, right? Mm. You know, which is kind of you know, the, I find that kind of interesting, really, uh, in terms of you know, kind of the politics of of the day um, and now, actually. Uh, it's almost like, I mean, I, you know, I hate to be bringing up Brexit into all my readings of every film. We always do, I do. Yeah, but you can't help, you know, w- when looking at films, you can't help but relate it to your own kind of life and understanding and context. Uh, and actually, one of the things that comes across is how generous-spirited this film is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in contrast to this us-them you know, fuck off Europe, let me suck your ass America kind of attitude that we're living through at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's only one, maybe two kind of full-on villains in the film. Yes. Basil Rathbone is the central figure. Yes. And uh, I guess Claude Rains as well as Prince John, but he comes less into direct conflict with Robin. Yes. Um, 
But you know, apart from that, kind of, he's very Robin is sort of very accepting of everybody. There's yeah. the, 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 it does come through. I think a certain level of. I think I think in his character, there's a certain feeling of superiority, conveyed as well. Though, like, like he he can afford to be nice to his enemies because he knows he's better than them. He knows that he will best them in a fight. Yes. Um, Except then you find out that he doesn't. That's why the little John incident is so interesting. You well, know. those guys, the, the, those those guys can knock him off of uh, you know a log or something. But when it comes to actually fighting someone who he went to fight to the death, yeah, he's not going to fail. Well, it's true, but again, that in itself, I suppose, is is an ideal of American democracy, right? Which is a meritocracy. It's kind of mm. you know, it's an aristocracy of worth or of merit. Mm. Right, it's not this idea that that all men are equal, but that they should all be treated equal, you know, and kind of um, you know the differences um, as they might exist are difference of physical power, beauty, or strength, or money, you know, but that actually fundamentally everyone is the same. And I think what he exudes is you know a kind of you know a, a superiority of physique and charm and so mm. on. Uh, there's no question about that. You never get the feeling with his character, I guess, that he's out of control at any point. You but know? also, you never get the feeling that he's not democratic. So, you know, um, I mean, there's, I suppose there's this difference that, like, that, you know, the difference between everybody being equal or, you know, the notion that everyone should be treated equally, mm. it's kind of, you know, it's not the same because, you know... I mean, even in the most ideal democracy, there will always be differences. I mean, people are innately different. Some are tall, some are shorter, some are good-looking, some are not good-looking, some, you know, are more intelligent or learn faster, or, you know, some, you know, have, you know, physical ailments or whatever. So I think, you know, it's it's the question of, you know, how you treat people and how inclusive you are with people and so on that is the thing. And, and that I find the yeah. film very democratic. I can see why why you you find uh, kind of positives there, but I... But I don't think that his character at any point feels like he's out of control in a scene. Feels like things are beyond his control and that he has to fight to get them back. He's never put in a position where he is really the underdog. Well, he's a, or at least he never he's feels all, like it. You know, it's never it's never conveyed that way. It's ne- you never feel like he has to actually climb out of a bad situation but, and make it a good one well, for no, himself. That's, that's not true. And I, in fact, you know, it's it's that the particular scene I have in mind. Mm. Which is the one where he's been, you know, he's kidnapped or he's he's uh, he's caught, you know, he's sent to the gallows, and you know he's about to be hanged, <laughs> right? And actually, instead of him doing something about it, you know, his whole community comes forth to rescue him. Yeah, you know. So I kind of, I mean, it's just still. I never feel like there's enough peril on him. I never feel not not enough peril, but I never feel that that's what film is. It's it's just that thing of you know you know that the guy is going to win in the end. Sure, because, because he's, he's the star, the star of the star movie. And, and <laughs> um, uh, but is that something that you mind that is a problem for you? It's not a problem, but I just think it's it's uh, it's a, a slight tweak to you know the reading that like he's kind of he's he's so kind of magnanimous. Mm. I think I think that kind of magnanimity and generosity and democracy would come across m- more strongly were he in a position where it was actually at stake for him. It never feels quite like it's a stake enough for him. It feels like he, he, can, he can afford to be so nice and stuff because he, he never is ever going to get into any peril that really troubles him. Mm. You know what I mean? 
I do know what you mean, and I and I kind of I almost agree, but I do think that you know, I suppose him being on the verge of being hung mm. is you know an incident. Also, I think there's something kind of lovely about you know him risking his life to climb up Maid Marian's window yeah. and declare his love, you know, yeah. and that's a risk. Now we might not experience it as a risk because. You know, we know the conventions of cinema. We know nothing's going to happen to the star. It's also true that the optimism and cheeriness and joy and health and all of that that Her Errol Flynn exudes kinds of makes it difficult to see that he, he, he'd find the problem he couldn't get out of. Yeah. But actually, I think that's also part of what makes him him and the pleasures that his star persona has to offer. You know, because, I mean, other people, you would sense they would be more imperiled or more in pain or... You know, you can imagine John Garfield or somebody like that, right? And they'd be tortured about the danger they were in. But that's, you know, that's not Errol Flynn. And what Errol Flynn has to offer, I think, is at, at least of equal value. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, it's a different type of, of kind of hero. It's a different type of action. Yes. It's incredibly enjoyable. I, don't, yes. I mean, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying it's not enjoyable. I just think there is a, there is a slight nuance to that reading of, of you know, kind of the, the generosity of his character that is... is um, Modified slightly by yes, I suppose you know the phrase a man amongst men kind of you know does indicate a certain kind of superiority. Yes, yeah. yeah, he's not number Z five two three. He's number one, right? Yeah. So uh, again, it's a little bit like Archer, where you know no matter what happens to Archer, he somehow is always going to survive. And 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 in Archer, it gets to the point where he knows that, which is why he's able to find everything so funny. Mm. And he says as much in dialogue in that show. Nothing ever, nothing bad ever happens to me. I don't know why I'm so lucky. You know? The reason why I wanted you to see this with me is because you remember when we went to view cinemas and they have like all of these posters at the entrance, right, of, um, you know, these classic films, right? Mm. And actually I was, you know, I was thinking of doing something on Curtiz and it struck me that, you know, they had two films, right, that were by Curtiz. So they only had eight posters of, you know, like the history of cinema represented in eight posters. And two were by Curtiz. Yeah. And actually they were Casablanca and Robin Hood. And really, kind of, they're both classics, but they're really neither of them thought to be great films, if one can make those distinctions, right? Like, kind of, you know, they're... they're I don't know if that is the case with Casablanca. I do think its reputation is... Well, we can argue about that. I actually think... But I do agree on the case with Adventures of Robin Hood. That it's a classic film. Everybody loves them. You know, uh, but people who write about the art of cinema don't think that neither, you know, Casablanca has anything complex or rich or any commentary on the human condition or any, you know, kind of um, uh, developments in the form or like any, any of the ways in which you can kind of say, you know, this is, you know, an example of the art of cinema. I actually don't think that people would ha have made those arguments about has Casablanca enjoyable as it is in the ways that we talked about in that podcast, you know, and I, 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 I share in those enjoyments. Uh, but anyway, it's, it, I was just struck. It's certainly not the case with Adventure Robin Hood. It somehow just doesn't fit with the... I can't remember what the other films were, but it somehow stood out. It was like Blade Runner and Kubrick. Yeah, but, uh, I, I think, um, but, but the point is, like, every other film definitely fit you went this is part of the canon yes and and adventure robin hood did stand out yes you know um, um though 
I mean, it is a de facto classic. Yeah. You know, it was re-released umpteenth times. You know, it's kind of, it's shown, uh, you know, on television. People love the color. The Corn Gold score is like an acknowledged classic, you know, um, mm. and a real kind of contribution to the art of scoring films. Uh, uh, it was kind of um, seen as very modern in its time. Mm. Uh, uh, and of course, it's got a supporting cast that is to die for, right? Like, uh, you know, Claude Rains uh, is just, he's always fantastic. But this has Eugene Pallette as well, you mm. know, who's at least as good. Uh, um, you know, I, I love um, Here Comes... What, no, what is the Lubitsch film? Here Comes Mr. Jordan, something like that? Um, the one about going to hell. Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait. 43. Yeah. Um, he's fantastic in that. He's like a millionaire who doesn't talk to his wife. You know, and his daughter has run off and married like this Rue who sleeps with everybody. Um, and he's just got like some skits in there that are marvelous. He's a marvelous comic actor. Um, and he's a joy to watch. And actually, you know, one of the interesting things that I've been, because, you know, I've been trying to go through all of these Errol Flynn films, Errol Flynn, Michael Curtiz films. And one of the characters who always appears is Alan Hale, who plays little John in this, mm. right? And, you know, in some of the films, like in The Seahawk and you know, Dodge City, you know, I just love seeing the interactions between Errol Flynn and him. It's almost like, like a kind of love, you know, it's like, a, you know, what we now call a bromance or something. But, you know, there's just kind of like this really easy, um, but deep kind of affection, right, between two men where like, you know, the issue of sex is not, is not there, right? Yeah. You know, and I kind of, I really like that about, you know, kind of their interaction in all of these films. You see it much less in this because actually they have less, you know, the big, their big scene together is a fight scene. Yeah. You know, and, and in the rest of the film he appears almost on his own or as part of a group, you know, but I kind of, um, but I love that easy camaraderie that, uh, that you see in this film actually as well, you know, but kind of more developed in other films in the series. Mm. Um, what other aspects of the home kind of caught your eye? Um, there are stylistic aspects that have become so sort of enshrined in um, cinematic kind of law and technique that um, they you know them almost through parody more than you do through uh -huh. through actual kind of um, genuine use of them, mm. um, such as such as the sort of the hero jumping down and standing there, hands on his hips, and yes. look, you know that it's that Errol Flynn stance. Yes, you know, but that, that and kind of looking off, sort of the cameras below him, and he looks off into the middle distance or into the distance, and um, and he's heroic, and you know that's been parodied sort of countless. Yeah, and and um, I suppose it goes along a little bit with what I was saying about the 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 action, um, seeing a little tame or amateur by today's standards that um you know you, you um i think i i think it's harder to i think it's harder to watch the film kind of genuinely getting into it than it was for me to watch Casablanca and genuinely get into it there were i think there were things in this that i was feeling more distance with ah. the action and the sets and that sort of thing they 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 felt more 
I don't know, I don't know if it's pretty like of their time or just that things have developed to the point where this now looks quite simple in some respects. Yes. I can see it is very much of its time. Yet I love it. Mm. You know, I think uh, it's it's maybe the second or third time that I've seen it in the space of a month. Yeah. Um, and well, as you saw, I kind of you know I still yeah. get enthralled. <laughs> yeah. I think the stuff uh, that really the stuff that I really connected with though was was the way that the character came out. You know, so when the action's happening, it was not hugely exciting to me. But but it's the way that the character expressed himself through. The action, yeah, and the way that I could, you know, as we said, like he's having a good time, yeah, while he's having a fight, and the way he's being creative in the fight and that sort of thing. That's what I connected with. Yes, I mean, I think that's an interesting distinction, actually. So there's, there's a difference between the way, well, you know, the action scenes being of their time, and our way of looking at it, which, you know, it has a, a distancing effect. So some of the things of their being of their time is a distancing effect. For example, you do realize that like, you know, some of the some of the action scenes are shot at a lower speed so that when they're projected they feel cranked up, they move faster, mm. right? You know, so so you get you're meant to get the impression that actually the characters are moving faster than they would normally, but actually it just looks jerky to us now, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? You know, so you can see that the sound has been dubbed on an image that has been filmed, yeah. you know, kind of at a different speed. Uh, the film has been speeded up, and that now seems like jerky and inelegant, you know. So there are those aspects to it, and yet on the other hand, there are some aspects of the action in this film that I like more than now. So I like, for example, the way that the film is often shot, you know, at a distance, right, or in a medium long shot, so that you could see people doing the action, and often sometimes in a longish or a relatively longish take. Right. Again, for the same purpose. So you actually see Errol Flynn jumping off a tree and he lands on the floor. Right. And there's something kind of beautiful about seeing him jump off the tree and landing yeah. on the floor. Whereas, you know, I was thinking you, you see a Bourne film and there would have been 55 cuts. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess the term for it these days is intensified continuity. Yes. Where, where cuts of very disparate things are put together to, get, to give you an impression of things that have happened. Whereas in, in you know, the adventures of Robin Hood, you see, generally speaking, things happen. Yes. They may, you know, bits in the middle may be cut out, like, for instance, when he jumps out of a tree, you may see a shot of him jumping out and then a second shot where he's on the ground landing. No, actually, in this shot, you see him doing the whole thing. Sure, but there are shots like that too. Yeah, sure. Um, where, so, you know, things are, you know, uh, edited and, and sped up, and so it's not like watching a stage play. I mean, you know, it's, it's a film. It has been edited to present what it's doing, but, you know, it's not um, as intense as that, and it's not giving you... Uh, information that you can't sort of relate. You can't. You, you can relate every single shot to the ones around it, kind no. of geographically and in sense of who's doing what and that sort of thing. I mean, I love the Bourne films, but I do think that you know some things are gains. For example, you know you can you can create a sense of speed and excitement through rapid editing, right? Also, you can get stunt people with better bodies and who can do actions better to do those actions. But actually, you know, what they don't provide that this film provides is, you know, seeing the star or an actor complete most of their actions, right? And so I'm not saying that they didn't have stuntmen then, obviously mm. they did, right? You know, but the film judges those things. So, you know, kind of some things you don't see and it's just part of a, you know, but actually it does take the moment to linger and show you Errol Flynn is doing this, wow, 
right? Mm. You know, and actually there's an appreciation of what the body can do in motion, you know, and the grace of that and the skill in that that I kind of value yeah. and appreciate. You find it amateur, you know. No, um, amateur is being a little strong, but it's, okay. it's um, I mean, the, the, what, what I found amateur was actually the performance of the actions. Like I say, when I'm watching Errol Flynn swinging a sword or yes. jumping over a, a stool or something, I'm going, I can do exactly that and I will look just as good. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how that looks. It's very... Well, it, no, but that's a wonderful thing. That yeah, in itself I, is very democratic. I enjoyed that To make too. people feel that, right? That's what I felt. That's, what, that's where the uh, kind of amateur uh, element crept into it for me. Um, but, you know, but I did enjoy that. I did enjoy feeling like everything that has been done here, I could definitely do that. Mm. So you were mentioning something about the sets and... Well, it reminded me really of Hook at points, oh. um, which was 1991, I think. Um, Steven Spielberg film, which I really, really love. And we, we should watch it on. We oh. should watch it together and do a podcast yes. on it one day. Very critically derided. Critically derided. People hated it. And it came kind of... I think I think it just it it was huge. It was a huge, huge production. It had these massive, massive sets and massive stars and massive stars, and um, and I think it may have come just sort of at, at the wrong time. People were just about getting sick of of things on its on its sort of scale or of its type, and it just it didn't grab people. But I really love that film. Mm. Obviously it came out when I was came out when I was three, so I wouldn't have even seen it at the cinema, but I watched it when I was a little kid at mm. home and I just watched it countless times. I love it. Um but there are stylistic things. So people who are aware of um Spielberg and his kind of seventies gang, mm. like Scorsese and Coppola and that, um, of being uh, huge fans of films from the nineteen thirties and forties and they took they talk about films like The Adventures of Robin Hood yes. as inspirations for their own. Um and having not seen The Adventures of Robin Hood before and kind of forgetting that sort of link, it, it would stare me in the face, you know, that, like, so much in Hook specifically is... Copied is too strong, but definitely heavily inspired mm. by um, the way that things are shot in Robin Hood or, or the way that things are designed. So, you know, the kind of... The, the, the Peter Pan green tights and the green sort of uh, outfit... Um, okay, like that is historically what Peter Pan. That's how he was sort of designed in the illustrations or whatever. And Robin Hood historically was wearing green as well. That's coincidence, but it's also they're the same. Mm. And when he, when when Errol Flynn is stood up on a ledge, kind of overlooking the Merry Men, like that is that's exactly a shot that has been copied mm. in Hook, where where Peter Pan is doing the same thing. He, he I mean, he flies, so he mm. lands on it, but it's the same shot that's being replicated. These huge, huge sets. Which I mean, there are early shots in uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, where um, all the action and all the people are in the bottom half of the frame, mm. and the entire top half of the frame is just the set. Yeah. It's like saying, "Just look at our big set." Yes. You know, we want to show off that we built a big well, set. Of course. And there's a lot yeah. of that in in Hook as well. I think it's a little more elegant in Hook, but they do have that enormous crane shot right at the start, where you overlook the entire sort of sort of harbour mm. with all the all the shops and things in Hook. Uh, which is there to show off our massive, expensive set, um, and you know, so much the the the, the sword play, for instance, when um, the kind of the huge gangs of, of of people that get involved in fights, you know, so like there's a central fight in this, which is between uh, Basil Rathbone and um, Errol Flynn, 
but everyone else in the background in the castle is fighting as well. Yeah. And you know the same sort of thing happens multiple times in Hook, where he's fight, where you know uh, 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 Peter Pan is fighting Captain Hook or Peter Pan is fighting Rufio, and in the background there's loads more action going on, mm. and you just get this sense of the uh, you know a huge sort of amount amount of action all happening in one space. Again, it's exactly the same. It's just it's derived directly from it. And I mean, when I talk about sort of watching the adventures of Robin Hood with, a, with an ironic distance. Actually, if you look at Hook, so much of the same sort of stuff is, is being done. But I don't have that ironic distance with that because I grew up with that. Yes. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's, it, and it's been kind of translated into, okay, so that film is actually 25, 27 years old now. Hook. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's an old film to a lot of people. But um, still sort of in a, in a, in a more modern film, that that kind of that kind of aesthetic and those sort of ideas and techniques um were well are made sort of you know easy to buy into yes you know in a way that so i don't have that distance watching hook whereas i do have it watching adventure robin hood but i but yeah i'm sure i, I imagine it's the case of probably if i had grown up watching adventure robin hood on tv or something i would probably not feel that way maybe that's an element of maybe maybe that kind of acclimatization is an element of of Getting rid of that distance that you feel. Mm. I um, I wonder if you have any comment on the various versions because part of the reason for you know my wanting to see this with you is also that there's a new version coming out just in a month or so. Yeah, the kind of Guy Ritchie-ish one. Uh, yeah. So um, it's with uh, uh, um, well, there are two up. versions actually. There's Taron one Egerton. with Taron Egerton. I think I, I think the other one you're thinking of is the 2013 one with with Russell Crowe. Uh, 2010. 20, 2010 maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I never so saw that one. The Taron Egerton one is coming out. Uh, there was the Russell Crowe one. There was the Kevin Costner one, which I've seen. Uh, there's of course the Walt Disney one. That's the only other one I have seen. Yeah, I remember also watching the television series. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, there was a Disney series of it. So it's kind of a narrative that just won't die. So, you know, uh, and of course we've mentioned the Douglas Fairbanks uh, in 1920s uh, or the silent version. It might be 1919, actually. Let me look it up. 1922. So uh, there's a 1922 version with Douglas Fairbanks Sr. There are just tons, though. Look at, look at this list. Yeah. Um, hundreds, yeah. hundreds there, of versions. So, so it's, it's kind of a narrative that persists. Yeah. And, and actually, it's, it's useful to speculate on why it persists, right? Because obviously, you know, Robin Hood is an outlaw, right? But he's fighting for justice. So in a way, he's the precursor to practically, you know, every, you know, superhero. And in fact, you could argue, actually, that the, the Green Arrow is kind <laughs> of, you know, yeah. uh, obviously based on it. And also there's this thing, so, you know, he's not like a peasant, right? So he is like, a, you know, Sir uh, Loxley. So Robin of Loxley. Yeah, and becomes, a, or is a baron, right? So he's a wealthy, yeah, and of course, like, you know, these superhero figures, they're all wealthy, but they're all fighting for the poor, you know, and they all lead a revolution, and, you know, and yeah. they reinstate justice and order, right, uh, against the rich and powerful, Right, so so it is interesting mm. that you know that's a kind of I think, you know, I think myth the, that persists. I think the nobleman version of him is just one version. I don't think he always was. Right, um, but it, but it's certainly the version in this, and, and it is a version of him. Um, 
because I, I get the, I haven't seen the new film yet, but I get the feeling from the trailer that he's not supposed to be a nobleman. You right. get the feeling in that, don't you, that he's a kid and sort of down on his luck, and he's yes. going to come up from nowhere to lead a revolution. That's the impression you get. Okay, that's interesting. Because um, um, I mean, he wasn't a real guy. Yeah, he's a legendary sort of folkloric sure. figure. Yeah. So you can put your own spin on it. Yes. You know, Walt Disney made him into a fox. But actually, that's what's so interesting about yeah. You know these these mythic narratives that they're so flexible and adaptable, yeah. and they lend themselves to so many versions, but they nonetheless, you know, have elements in common. Yeah. Yeah, and generally, as you say, it's the it's the fighting the powers that be and the, and the classic kind of line that goes along with Robin Hood and pretty much every version is steals from the rich and gives to the poor. Yes. Um. That's that kind of that's really heavily associated with him, and you know I do sometimes think that like, in in watching. Uh, a fictional narrative of someone who is able to lead resistance and fight the power and achieve great things and that sort of thing. Um, it kind of, it's that escapism thing of it excuses you from from doing it in your own life. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, you, you know, does it excuse you or does it encourage you? I mean, you know, kind of... You go to the cinema to get that kick and then, and then you go but, home and you've had it. Well, I'm not sure about that, but, you know, because, I mean, you know, one of the definitions of art is that it should always show you, you know, the way that things should be, the way that they are in the gap in between, kind of, you know, em embodying all those contradictions, right? But, you know, kind of the gap between a utopian ideal of how the world should be and then kind of your own realization that there's a distance between the world you live in and the way that things should be. So actually, sometimes just by showing something glorious and beautiful and you know where everything works out that actually you know can be um you know a path to action and to enlightenment to action on its own arguably yeah it could be you know maybe that reflects then more on me and i'm just lazy <laughs> anyway you know but but I think this version of, of Robin Hood is certainly all of those things, you know. Yeah. It's Wouldn't it be of... interesting if the new one turned out to be good? Well, we'll have to go see it now. We'll have to go and see it. Yeah. Um, I'm very keen on seeing the, the Douglas Fairbanks version because actually now I'm ashamed that I haven't seen it really. I, I must make more of an effort to see it. Um, I want to see that. I want to see the Kevin Costner one because... Ugh. I know. It's, 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 it's between Kevin Costner and... Um, Russell Crowe. I couldn't even bring myself to see the <laughs> Russell the Russell Crowe version. He got just, so much stick for it. I he didn't get really annoyed at an interviewer for telling him that his accent wasn't very good. We asked him why the accent changed, and he's like, "What are you talking about? My accent's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> my accent's fantastic. Let me throw my phone at you." <laughs> so anyway, that, that's that in a way is one of the pleasures of Robin Hood. Is as an English person, it's it's really enjoyable to see how Americans get into cultural holes with it, where they misunderstand certain things. You go, that's not what it's like. You see, that's why they invented the green arrow or arrow. So mm. they wouldn't have to put up with snooty Englishmen <laughs> kind of criticizing their accents. They could say, fuck you. We don't need you or your accent. <laughs> that might be a good note to end on. But that's one of the joys. Like when Americans come in and take our stories, then we have the right to be snooty about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, can come up with new stories. Yeah. Anyway. 
Yeah, I enjoyed. I enjoyed saying that. Yes, I think it's. I think it's as great as it ever was. You know, I found it like completely enjoyable and got a kick out of the same things that I always do. Uh, and I loved, you know, the color, the score, Errol Flynn, the supporting cast. You know, I kind of. I do think that it's one of those things where you know it's better not to look for too much depth. You know, it's not necessarily there, but actually the attractions are exhilarating. Yes. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, n- next time we'll watch a film from my youth instead of yours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Though I came to this one as an adult. I never saw this, I don't think, in my youth. I, I, saw, really? I saw the Walt Disney television series and the animated film. But actually, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, maybe it wasn't shown on TV when I was growing up or whatever. I only kind of came to this as an adult, you know, after hearing very much uh, uh, about it. Uh, so it's a it's a, it's a thrilling film. I really highly recommend it, uh, and I think it is available on Netflix at the moment. Is it? I think so. Or it might be Prime. But actually, it's it's a, it's definitely easily available to see. Should anyone, should any of you want to, and I hope that after our discussion, you do want to. Yes. Um, so um, thank you very much for listening. Yes, we are um, uh, on SoundCloud, iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and eavesdropping at the movies dot com. Yes. Uh, Next time, Hook. Thank you very much for listening. (laughs)